Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, church family. Sound good. Good morning to those online. It's, it's been great just to watch conversations take place and handshakes and hugs and all kinds of things. And so uh, that's the joy of the room. If you are online and if you have not just sort of reached out and given us a handshake this morning and said hi, please do that right now, whether in the comments or whether you simply text uh, to the number that's on your screen. We would just love to interact with you as well. Uh, we are continuing this morning in our Timeless Truth series, and uh, it is a special treat for us to have one of our own uh, to come and share God's truth. Uh, as Pastor Scott was preparing for sabbatical, and, and uh, this couple was uh, transitioning off of our, our staff, uh, we thought, what a wonderful opportunity not to allow them to leave, but for us to really send them. And uh, this young man is, is someone that many of you know, some of you don't, but you've seen the influence of his kingdom work uh, through our production, through our technology and, and all of that. But this morning, you're going to catch a different perspective of him uh, with his heart, even as I've watched him uh, as our production director over the last four years as part of our Southbridge family. Uh, it's been a joy for me to watch him and, and see his pastor's heart. Um, his love for the Lord, his love for people. So I'm going to invite Drake to come. Uh, Drake and Haley have, uh, they're moving on to the next step in, in God's journey for their life. Uh, but uh, Drake is going to come and open the word of God. And so I want you to make him feel warm. Give him lots of smiles. Give him lots of affirmation, if you would, please. You will definitely hear his heart. Um, and so pray for him and pray with me for him right now as he opens God's word and talks about our timeless truth of God's word. Father in heaven, thank you so much for Drake. Thanks for Haley. Thanks for their love for you, uh, their love for us as a church family and as a people. And Lord, right now as he opens the word of God, would you just embrace him through his heart? God, would you hide him behind the cross and let the Holy Spirit speak through him in a powerful way as he ministers to us with your truth? In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Dave, and good morning, Southbridge. Man, it's so great to be with you guys this morning. I love you all so much. <laughs> We've been here four years, my wife and I, and I'm excited to have an opportunity today to share with you a message from God's Word, and I'm honored and humbled just to be able to share this stage with some of our awesome teachers and preachers here at Southbridge. I particularly want to thank Pastor Scott, who's on sabbatical right now, for his faithful teaching of God's Word here each and every week, as well as Pastor Dave and Pastor Scott Mason, and really all of our leaders here at our church. I'm so grateful for each of them and the example they set for us and how to follow Christ. And when my wife and I joined four years ago, we had no idea the amount of life change that was going to be in store for us, in large part through the, the teaching of God's Word here each week. And so we've been grateful to call this our church family. And as Pastor Dave said, we're going to continue this morning in our Timeless Truth series. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know we've been talking about some of the, the truths in Scripture that stand the test of time. And even when the world around us is changing, and when culture is redefining what's true and what's right and what's good, we have the truths of Scripture to stand on in uncertain times. And so this morning, we're going to look at a, another timeless truth. And last week, if you were with us, you know that Pastor Scott Mason talked about the unconditional truth of God, or the unconditional love of God, which is a, a sorry, the timeless truth of God's unconditional love for us. And today, we're going to be looking at how that unconditional love gives us the confidence.
confidence to go forward and to do the task that God has called us to. And that's the title of the message this morning. It's the timeless task of the church. And we're going to be looking at Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. So let me pray for us before we get started. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this people in this place, and I thank you for your son, Jesus. I thank you for this spiritual transformation, God, that you've brought in our life and the gospel saturation that you're going to bring in and through this church, Lord. And so this morning, I ask that you speak your words through me, use me in my weakness to motivate us to go and take the good news of the gospel to a world that desperately needs it. It's in your son Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, you've also maybe heard before the phrase that last words are lasting words. That the last words that someone says, whether it's in a speech or they're written in a book, that last words are meant to be lasting words. They're meant to have a lasting effect. And I want you to think about this morning, someone in your life that's had a positive influence influence on you, and especially if you're a believer, someone that's had a positive influence on your relationship with Jesus. As you think about that person, I want you to recall, what were the last words that they said to you? For me, that person would be my grandfather, my dad's dad. My grandfather was a really influential, uh, he was a doctor in in Kentucky where he was from. He was known as being involved in the Right to Life movement. He was really involved in his church. In fact, he was a, a trustee at the Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And he was really instrumental in leading me and a lot of members of my family to faith. In fact, I remember vividly one morning we went to church together. We went to this pretty traditional Southern Baptist church growing up where each week, you know, they'd print out the, the bulletin for the week on that really ugly beige colored paper. Y'all know what I'm talking about? The whole service order would be on there. Well, usually I'd just be sitting there in church doodling on my bulletin. But this morning, I was eight years old. My grandfather, he sat next to me and he had his own bulletin and on it, he wrote a question for me and he passed it to me. And the question said this, Drake, are you ready to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of your sins? And he'd given me two options underneath the circle, yes and no. And at that point in my life, you know, I'd, I'd heard the gospel. I, I had a, I'd been aware of my need for a Savior and how much of a sinner I was. I had a younger brother, and that was evidence to me that I was a sinner. And, you know, so I'd heard the gospel through, through church and my, gran- my granddad and my parents. And so I circled yes, I believed. And so he grabs the bulletin back and he writes another question for me. And this time it says, Drake, are you ready to go up in front of the whole church and tell everybody about the decision you just made? Again, he put yes or no. And what do you think I said? Yes? I don't know. No. I said no. <laughs> I was eight years old. I am not ready to go up in front of the whole church. <laughs> but that's funny, though. And sure enough, four years later, I would go up in front of the whole church, and I'd be baptized. And thanks in large part to the intentionality of my grandfather and my parents to lead me to a point of decision in my faith. And about a few years after I was baptized, my grandfather, he actually passed away in a freak accident that left him essentially brain dead. And he was in the hospital for a couple weeks, and they had to pull him off life support. But I remember vividly the last words that he left with us. You see, he had left a voicemail on my dad's answering machine about a week before that accident. And I remember it clearly because my dad had burned those words, that voicemail, onto a CD that he left with us. And my, my dad played that over and over. And it sounded like this. Hello, son. It's your dad. I was just wanting to see when we can get together next. I love you. And the love in that man's voice was so deep and so clear. His last words to my dad were, I love you. Jesus went to the cross for you because he loves you so much. And he paid the price for your sin. And his last words to you today are recorded in Scripture for us in Matthew chapter 28. They are important words. They're the last thing he told his disciples and us to go and do. So let's look at those words this morning together. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. 
starting in verse 16. Now the 11 disciples, that's the 12 minus Judas, went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And so he directed him there back in verse 10 when Jesus met Mary and Mary Magdalene coming on the road. And he, he sees them there. They had just come from the tomb. They had met the angel there and they saw that the tomb was empty. And they said, Jesus, he said, the angel said, Jesus has risen. Go and tell the disciples. And so they're on their way. And then they, they see Jesus on the road. And he says, greetings. Or there's actually one translation that says, howdy. <laughs> he sees them on the road. He says, greetings. And then he says, verse uh, 10, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So then in verse 17, it says, when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And it's clear that they worshiped him. Maybe they, they believed he was God. They, they'd seen him come back to, to life from death. But why did they doubt? It doesn't say why they doubted. Maybe, maybe some of them did doubt it was really him or that he was really God. Or maybe they doubted themselves. I th that's what I think. I think that maybe they were doubting themselves because they had, they had abandoned him when he was arrested. Maybe they were doubting that they could do the task he was about to call them to do. Well, whatever their reason for doubting was, here is what he says to them. He says in verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, you may have heard this passage referred to before as the Great Commission. It's the Great Commission of the church. And the man that actually first popularized this phrase was a missionary uh, from England in the 19th century to China, and his name was Hudson Taylor. And Mr. Taylor is known for several things. One of those, and perhaps most important, is that he started what became the China Inland Mission, which was the largest missionary movement in the 19th century to reach the Chinese people. In fact, the China Inland Mission went on to become so successful that by the year 1900, the Chinese government and the Chinese people reacted to the Western influence, the Christian influence, and in the year 1900, there was the Boxer Rebellion, and 79% or 79 members or missionaries of the China Inland Mission were killed in the Boxer Rebellion. But that didn't stop the gospel from spreading in China. In fact, Hudson Taylor's China Inland Mission still exists today in another, in an, under another name, and the gospel is exploding across China today. So that's one thing he's known for. Another thing he is known for is that initially in his career, he was a medical doctor. He had heard about some of the physical suffering in China as a young man, and so he trained and he studied medicine to go and take the gospel and to take medicine to the people in China. But what I find that's interesting about Hudson Taylor is that he didn't call both of those things the Great Commission. He only called one of those the Great Commission. And I, I think what was really important for Hudson Taylor and what we need to remember today as the church today in America is that we're to be about and to be involved in many good things. But if we forget, and if we don't get, get excited about the Great Commission, we may miss our calling. In fact, Danny Aiken, he's the president of Southeastern Seminary up in Wake Forest, he says it like this. He says, we, the church, are to be about the business of doing many, many important and good things. But if we neglect the most important thing, which I think is fulfilling the Great Commission, then I think we have missed what was the heartbeat of our Lord. The Great Commission was so important to Jesus that he left it for us as his last words, has left it for his, his disciples as his last words. So we have to ask the question then, if the Great Commission was so important Jesus, to Jesus, well, why? Why was it so important to Jesus, and why is it important now? Well, to answer that question, we need to understand more of the context of the book of Matthew. And I encourage you to read the book of Matthew this week if you haven't. Take, take some time to look through that book. But the, the, the book of Matthew is really all about one thing. It's about a king and his kingdom. 
The, the king is Jesus, and he is here to establish his kingdom. In fact, Jesus talks about the kingdom more in the New Testament than anything else. In fact, his first words in public in Matthew 4, verse 17, are this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here now. And so the, the, the kingdom is very important to Jesus. But not only is it important, it's valuable to him. It's extremely valuable. Look at Matthew chapter 13. Here, Jesus is describing the kingdom in all these different parables. And if you look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, it says this. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The kingdom is extremely valuable. Or look at verse 45. It says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The kingdom is extremely valuable. But if the kingdom is so valuable, well, then what is it? What is the kingdom of God? Well, it can be kind of a complex question, but if I were to simplify it for us this morning, I would say this. And this is a definition that I borrowed from the Gospel Coalition, in case you're wondering. It says, The kingdom... This should be on screen. The kingdom is God's reign and rule over this earth. It's his reign through God's people, the church, and over God's place. The kingdom is God's reign through God's people over God's place. And so when Jesus comes, he establishes the kingdom. He says the kingdom's here. He's expanding the kingdom by bringing people into it. And one day when he returns, that kingdom will be complete. So that's what the kingdom is. Now you may be asking, okay, well then who's in the kingdom? What does it mean to be inside the kingdom and who's outside the kingdom? Well, Jesus is clear in John chapter 3 who's inside the kingdom. Look at John chapter 3, verse 3. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again. Well, what does it mean to be born again? Well, Paul explains this for us in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. Ephesians 2, verse 1, he says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Jump down to verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's what it means to be born again. It means you were dead but you've been brought back to life. There was a spiritual rebirth that happened in you. You were dead, but now you're back to life. So that's who's, well, Jesus explains it here again in verse uh, 16 of John chapter 3. He says it like this, that whoever believes in him, sorry, for God so loved the world that, whoever, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, that's to die, but to have eternal life. So to be born again means you're brought from death to life. So that's who's inside the kingdom. But what about those who are outside the kingdom? Well, he answers this for us a couple verses later in John chapter 3, verse 18. He says this, Whoever believes in him, in Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Well, you might be asking, what does it mean to be condemned? And I have to give a disclaimer here because I'm going to talk about hell which is not a popular topic in our world or in our culture, even in the church today. And I think for good reason, some of us have had experiences with people who have no love in themselves, who then go out and tell people that they're going to go to hell. And if that's you this morning, if you've had an experience like that with someone in the church, I want to say, I'm, I'm sorry. In fact, I had an experience like that. Uh, I went to the University of Kentucky for my undergraduate, big school, uh, and there was, you know, 15 minutes for me to walk each day if I want to get to class. So one day, I remember vividly, I was walking across campus, 
And there in this big public area, there was two groups of people. There was a couple guys, one with a sign and one with a megaphone, and a big group of students all gathered around them. And as I got closer and I started seeing what was happening, I saw that the guy with the sign, the sign basically said that this list, big long list of people were going to go and burn in hell. And the guy with the megaphone was shouting back and forth with this group of students. And everybody was angry. Everyone's angry in this scenario, okay? And as I get closer, I listen to the students. And one of them says to this guy, he says, what makes you so much better than us? And the guy with the megaphone just smiles and he looks at him and he says, Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And I am perfect. And he just did this little like dance kind of thing. And I was appalled. Not that he was talking about hell. Not that he was there to warn people about God's judgment. I was appalled because he was mocking those students. He was laughing that they were going to go to hell. Assuming that some of them there were. He was making fun of them. And again, if if that's your experience, I I apologize. Like that, that is not the way Jesus treats lost people. In fact, as I thought about that scene this week, I thought about Matthew chapter 9 verse 36. It says this, that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. See, Jesus loves lost people. He came for lost people. He came to save lost people. But Jesus is not afraid to talk about hell. In fact, of the 162 references to hell in the whole Bible, about 70 of those are uttered by Jesus himself. Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in the whole Bible. And so if Jesus is going to talk about hell, we need to understand what he means by it. And there's a lot of different views about hell in the world today. You might be familiar with them. Some are are inside the church and some are out. One is this, there is no hell. Hell is a fiction. It was created as, a, as just a fiction by, by maybe Christians. And atheists hold to this view, and there are some Christians that hold to this view, actually. They believe that when you die, those who are in Christ will go to spend an eternity in heaven. But those who are not in Christ, they simply cease to exist. There, there is no hell. That's one view. Another view is that hell is a temporary place to which you go for a period of time. After that period of time, you're either destroyed or annihilated, or you're purified of your sin. Your sin is purged. And then you're allowed to enter into heaven again. That's another view of hell. One other view that I think is probably more popular in our world today is that hell is a reality that we create for ourselves in this life. It's not a literal place. It's a figurative place, an experience that we create for ourselves. And this is a view of some pastors, like uh, guys like Brian Zond and Rob Bell. You might be familiar with those names. Um, It's also the view of the uh, the famous Canadian clinical psychiatrist and author of 12 Rules for Life, Dr. Jordan Peterson. And he says it like this. He says that to suffer terribly and to know yourself as the cause, that is hell. That is hell on earth, to suffer and know yourself as the cause. And I'm not here to dispute these views. In fact, I encourage you, go and look up what the Bible has to say about hell for yourself. Do the research for yourself. But when I see what Jesus has to say, it's a very different picture. Look at Matthew chapter 13, verses, um, excuse me, let me find myself here. Matthew chapter 13, verses 40 through 43. Here Jesus is explaining one of the parables to the disciples. He's explaining the parable of the weeds. And he says this in verse 40. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. He's talking about the final judgment when he returns. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom, note that word, kingdom, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom, there it is again, of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is not a pretty picture that Jesus is painting. Look again, I've got another place for us to look at. Look at Matthew chapter 25. This is verse 41. We'll read this together. Here, Jesus is talking about the final judgment, and he's describing two groups of people, one on his right that he's going to consider righteous, and another on his left that he considers wicked and sinful. Look at verse 41 with me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jump down to verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Well, some have said here that this word eternal, it may not mean eternal. And there's some reason for this. The root in Greek has to do with an age or a period. But if you look at every translation, every English translation that I found of this text, it says either eternal, everlasting, or forever. And in fact, this, this Greek word here is ionios. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, you'll see that the Greek word ionios is often used to translate the Hebrew word leolam. And leolam is a complex word. I don't mean to, 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 to boil it down so simply, but one of the ways it's often translated is forever, always, for eternity. And so if this is the way, if this is the correct way of understanding hell based on the Bible, then that means that in our world of 7.6 billion people in which 4.6 billion do not have access to a church and the gospel, that in our world of 7.6 billion people, every day, 155,937 people are going to die and spend an eternity in hell today. 155,937 people. The largest stadium in the world is in Pyongyang, North Korea. It's claimed that it'll hold 150,000 people. Now, I want you to imagine that you're standing in the middle of that stadium and you're looking out, and every single seat is filled with a human being. And there are people lined up at the gate to get in. And every person there that day is going to die and go to spend an eternity in hell. And tomorrow is going to be filled up again with the same number of people. And by the end of the year, 57 million people will be in hell. That's what we're talking about here. And I don't know how you react when you hear things like that. Maybe it's anger. Maybe you are angry at God that he would send so many people, good people in your view, to hell for eternity. Maybe you're sad. Maybe you're sad that people you love, that you're praying for, that you, you want them to come to Jesus, but they haven't yet. Maybe you're sad that this is their fate. Whatever your emotions this morning, I'm not trying to discredit them. Whatever your emotions this morning, take them to God. Because I guarantee you, he can handle your emotion and he cares about these people far more than you do. That's why he sent his son. He went on a rescue mission to save the lost because he cares for lost people. And if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, this, this reality should motivate us to go and do this task. He's called us to, right? If 155,937 people today will die, what are we waiting for? But increasingly what we see in the American church is that there's an apathy to go and share our faith. Increasingly, Christians do not feel comfortable or don't want to go and share their faith. In fact, in a recent study by the Barna Group, who does research for Christians, they found that of a group of millennial Christians that they surveyed, 47% said that it was wrong and offensive to share their faith as a Christian with a person of another religion. 
47% said it was wrong and offensive to share their faith. Their faith. In the same group of, of a millennial Christians, my generation, 94% said that Jesus was the best thing that could ever happen to anyone, including themselves. That Jesus was the best thing that ever happened. You catch that irony? 94% say, oh, Jesus is the best thing in the world. Half of those then say, I don't want to talk about him, though. That would be offensive. Why would I want to do How can you believe he's the best thing in the world and then not go talk about him? If people are dying every day, and he's the best thing, he's the only way, how can you not talk about him? What has happened? Well, I think a few things have happened. One is that we've lost a biblical view of hell. We either forgot about it, or we don't like to think about it. We don't like to think that 555,937 people today are going to go to hell. That's one reason, I think. The other reason is that we've bought into a belief, either implicitly or explicitly in our hearts, that there's some other way that people can be saved. You, you may have heard it said before like this. If there's a man on a desert island by himself, he's all alone, he lives his entire life there, and he never hears the gospel, that in his mercy, God will find a way to reveal to that man how he can come to faith, right? You've heard, have you heard that before? Well, what's the problem with this logic? What's the worst thing you could do for that man? It's share the gospel, right? Because as soon as you do, his exemption is gone. Before, he had never heard, so he, he was exempt. He was outside of God's judgment. But now that he's heard, he has to make a decision. Is he going to follow Jesus or not? So this logic doesn't, doesn't compute, and it goes right in the face of the Great Commission. Because if this was true, Jesus would not be telling us to go and make disciples. In fact, it goes against all of Scripture. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Here, Peter says that the salvation is found, and there, there's salvation in no other name and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other name. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Look at this. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved on the name of Jesus. Look what he says then. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him if they've never heard of him? They can't believe in Jesus. A man on the island can't believe in Jesus if he didn't hear about Jesus. Then he says, how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how can someone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This morning, Southbridge, we are those that are to bring good news. That is our task. That is our great commission. And Jesus is, the first point this morning is that God is commanding you to go and make disciples. That is the first point this morning is that you are commanded to go and make disciples. Excuse me for a second. We're going to look back at the text here, Matthew chapter 28. Looking at verse uh, 18 now. <clears throat> Excuse me. It says, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in, on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Notice here in verse 18, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth. All, what does all mean? Well, all. All means all. <laughs> all authority everywhere and every time and every place, over every kingdom, every ruler, every nation, Jesus has authority. And not only does he have authority, he, it has been given to him. This is what we refer to in the Greek as the divine passive voice. It's passive because the action was received. He has been given the authority. It's divine because although the name of God is not written in here, it doesn't say God gave him the authority. It's clear. No one else but God can give that kind of authority. 
Only God can give authority to someone over heaven and earth. So Jesus has been given the authority by God, but not only that, he's the only one that can wield that kind of authority because he himself is God in the flesh. Amen? And so Jesus wields all authority, and with his authority as King Jesus, as the risen king, he goes and he makes his first decree to his disciples in verse 19. He says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So this command here, or this whole verse here, this, this sentence, is organized. It has four verbs, and one of them gets the emphasis, and that's the imperative here, which is make disciples. And everything else, go, baptize, and teach, is all a participle that's supporting that main emphasis, that main verb, make disciples. And so when Jesus is saying, go make disciples, he's saying, go make disciples. That's it. He's saying, go and do it. I'm emphasizing making disciples, but in order to do that, you got to go. You can't just sit there. You can't wait for disciples to come to you. You have to be intentional and go make disciples. Well, what is a disciple? Well, what does it mean to make disciples? What does it mean to be a disciple? Well, a disciple in the ancient Greek world was simply a learner. The word disciple is a really common word in Greek, and it means a learner or a student or a pupil or even a, an apprentice. And so in the ancient Greek world, when someone would go to be a student, they wouldn't pick a school to go to, like we would pick the best university today. They would pick the best teacher because they would be a, a, a disciple of an individual. And so Aristotle became a disciple of Plato. And so today, as Christians, we become disciples of Jesus, which means that we study Jesus. We become the students of Jesus. But it is not only an intellectual task. As, as Scott Mason shared last week, we can't miss the 18 inches from our head to our heart. To be a disciple of Jesus is not just to study his words. It to, it's to imitate him in every way, in our character, thoughts, attitudes, and actions. That should be on, on screen as well. Is that to be a disciple of Jesus means you imitate him in every way, in your character and thoughts, in your attitudes, and in your actions. And so what that means is that in everything that you are, in everything that you think, everything that you feel, and everything that you say and do, you are to imitate Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, is that in everything that you are, you, just, you imitate Christ. And so we are called to be disciples and to, excuse me, make disciples. But not only that, he says then, of all nations. Make disciples of all nations. Well, what does he mean there? Well, what he doesn't mean is go and make sure there's a Christian in all 195 countries in the world. <laughs> he, doesn't make, he doesn't say that, that there's, there should be one Christian in every country. What he's saying here is the word ethnos, which in Greek is the word from which we get our English word ethnicity. And another way of reading this is people groups. Go and make disciples of all groups of people in the world. And in our world today of 7.6 billion people, like I said before, there are an estimated 12,000 unique people groups. And a people group is a, a group of people that are united by some forms of identity. It could be their language, could be their culture, um, various other factors that sets them apart from other people groups. And so there are 12,000 people groups in this world, and 7,306 of them are considered to be unreached. That's 4.6 billion people. And so when he says to go and make disciples of all nations, he's saying that those people groups in the world that primarily, I wanted to show this to you first, I want to get ahead of myself. The majority of these people live, the unreached people, live in what's called the 1040 window. We have a picture of that that's going to come on screen. It's a large area of the world that spans all the way across North Africa, through the Middle East, into Central and South Asia, Southeast Asia, and includes China. 
So in that huge span of land, there are 3.1 billion people that do not have access to a church and to the gospel. That's Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and a host of other religions all that live in that area. And so when he says, go and take disciple, go make disciples of all nations, he means the unreached people. Those that don't have the gospel, go and take it to them. And this, this command to go to all nations is tied to a really amazing promise that Jesus gave us earlier in the book of Matthew. And if you want, if you want to take away anything from this message this morning, I, I take away this, because this is really cool and really important. Go to Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. Excuse me. Here, Jesus is talking about the signs of the end of the age. He's talking about what's going to happen before he comes back. And look at verse 14. It says, And this gospel of the kingdom, there it is again, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. There it is again, ethnos. And then the end will come. Did you see that? The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout all nations, and then the end will come. Well, what does that mean? That means that when, the, when every nation, tribe, tongue, when all the people groups hear and have access to the gospel, Jesus will return. Well, what does that mean for us? That means that we can speed up Jesus' return. That if we go and make disciples of the unreached, Jesus will come back faster because the mission will be accomplished. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> Isn't that cool? Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We get, to tell, we get to speed up when he comes. We don't know the day or the hour, but we get to speed it up. We're involved in the task of when Jesus will return. That is so exciting. But it's also a daunting task. Can anybody imagine what 3.1 billion people looks like? I can't. It's a huge task. But he's commanded us to do this task. But not only that, he's equipped us to do this task. And that's our second point, is that not only has Jesus commanded you to go make disciples, he has equipped you to go and make disciples. And he's done that in a couple of ways. The first way is this. Look at Matthew chapter, oh, I've lost my place here, sorry. Matthew chapter 19, or 28, excuse me, verse 19, the second part here. It says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Notice here, he doesn't say baptize them in the names of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. He says in the name because there is only one name of God. There's only one God. He has three persons, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. But he says baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, why is baptism so important here? Well, for those of you who have been baptized, you know that baptism is an outward representation of what God has done inside you. You know, it's a symbol of an inner reality, a transformation that's takes, that takes place inside of you. And so when we say, uh, here at Southbridge, when we baptize people, we talk about being raised to life. We were dead in sin, we've been raised to life. That's what the waters of baptism signify, is that you were washed clean, you were raised to life. But there's another thing that baptism uh, is for us, and what, another th way that it equips us, is that baptism gives us a new identity. You see, when we are baptized, we receive a new identity, and that identity represents us to the world, kind of like a passport. Most of you all probably have passports in here, I would imagine. I know many of you travel. And this week, we actually went to Lewisburg, uh, my wife and I and our kids, to get their passports made. I have two kids, one age two, and my son is eight months old. And you know, when you get your passport photo taken, it has to be like perfectly framed. And he's eight months old, so I have to like, we go in there to the office, and I'm holding him up like this. <laughs> She's like, can he stand on his own? I'm like, no, he cannot. So I just sit there holding, making sure my arms are out of the frame, you know, to get his pa passport. But so they're, they're on the way, they're getting their passports. But what will those passports do for them? Well, anytime they travel to visit another country, it will give them access, but to also it will tell people where they're from, who they are, 
What's their homeland? Where are they going to return to? And baptism for us as Christians is our kingdom passport. It is our kingdom passport because it reminds us that we are not of this world. We have another home and another place, and we have an allegiance to another king. And so we as the church are united in baptism. While the rest of the world is divided, we as the church can gather, 12,000 people groups can gather in the same place and worship Jesus because of our kingdom identity. That's why baptism is so important. So that's one way he's equipped us. There's another way he's equipped us here. Look at verse 20. It says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So here, this is the only part of Jesus' command, if you notice, it's in the past tense. Everything up to this point, he's been talking about what you're to do from now and into the future, right? But here he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Well, what's he saying? He's saying, you've got this. You've got it. I've been with you. I've been sharing my instructions with you. I've, I've taught you how to live. You have my words. You've been equipped. Now go and do it. Now I believe, in, and I believe in here in Southbridge, there's many of us that are, have been members of this church and been Christians for a while, and you have, we have so much knowledge and so much capaci capacity and potential that we are ready. You are ready to go and make disciples. He's equipped you. He's given you his word. He's given you his Holy Spirit to dwell inside of you and to empower you. And not only that, he's given you the church, brothers and sisters in Christ to support you as you go. And if that's not enough, look at the end of verse 20. This is our third promise today, our third uh, point. Jesus says at the end of verse 20, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus will help you make disciples. That's what he's saying here. He said, you, you have everything, but I will be with you just in case. <laughs> I'll, I'll be with you. But what, what's, what's amazing about this part here, this end, this passage, he says, behold, I'm with you always. It's funny to me because in Greek, it doesn't say always. There's a, there's a word in Greek for always. It's pantate. But here, the word is, the words are pasas tas hemeras, which literally means all the days. Well, why does that matter, you might ask? I mean, why, why get all Greek on us? Well, always can be a little vague, right? Like if I say to my wife, who's sitting over there, if I say to my wife, I will love you always, that's a little vague, right? Like what if, what, what, when the kids are screaming, the house is a mess, which it currently is because we're moving, or, you know, we're angry at each other, like is always going to matter then? But if I say to her, I will love you each and every day, each and every moment, carries more weight, right? Gives them more of a picture of the moments that we're in. That's what Jesus is saying here. So I will be with you each and every day. I am with you, he says. It's present tense. I will be with you every day. I am with you. So that means when you get discouraged and you try to go and share your faith, and you, you fail, you fumble over your words, he's with you. When you get rejected and someone spits back in your face and says, I don't want that, he's with you. When you go and you share and you're successful and you have a good gospel conversation and the person's excited, Jesus is there with you and he's excited too because he's with you always to the end of the age, till he returns. And this morning, church, I want to remind us, because I know we all, we, we, we know this, that our task, we're commanded to go and make disciples. And I believe that in this room, some of you have been called and equipped to go and do this, not here, not even in the U.S., but to the nations, to the 1040 window. And if that's you this morning, I challenge you, before you leave today, stop by. There's a table out in the lobby next to the Next Steps table. There are some booklets and information that you can grab that, can t that will tell you how you can get involved in the mission to reach the lost of our world through an organization that we partner with. So stop by the Next Steps table. 
And if you're, if you're watching online, you can email us, info at sfchurch.com, and we'll send you those materials. You can have those for free. But for some of you in this room, you're not called to go to the nations. You're not called to move your family overseas. And that's okay. Because Jesus says to go and make disciples of all nations, but he's not saying that everybody needs to move and go do it. In fact, Paul, the apostle Paul was a missionary, but the apostle Peter, he was a local church pastor. He stayed in Jerusalem. He didn't go, get, up, get up and go somewhere else. And so some of us are called to stay and make disciples here. And so to order first, I want to make this point. In order to make disciples, you first have to be a disciple. And so if you're a disciple of Jesus this morning, if you're not, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you a chance to pray to become one soon. But if you are a disciple of Jesus, I want to challenge you to do a couple things this morning. One, I want you to seek out someone that's older and more mature in their faith than you and ask them to be intentional to disciple you, to, to come alongside you and to help you grow in your faith. Because we all need people that, that can love us and invest in us and help us to grow and to become more obedient disciples. And that's why Paul, when he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, that's what he means is that when we as disciples imitate Christ, then people can come alongside us and they, they follow Christ through us. So I challenge you to go and find someone that's older than you that can help, help you grow as a disciple. And not only that, I challenge you then to go and find someone that you can disciple. Maybe they're a believer already, a young believer. Maybe they're not a believer yet. But go and spend time and invest in them to help them grow in their faith. And that, that's going to look different for everybody. Maybe it's you get together once a week for coffee or once a month for dinner. But just be intentional to go and be a disciple and make a disciple. And I want to go one step further this morning with y'all. Okay, you ready? I want you to go and make a disciple of someone that's, one, not a member of this church that doesn't attend Southbridge, and two, if you're willing, whose first language is not English. <laughs> Did you think I was going there? I want you to challenge, some, to, to make a disciple of somebody who's, who doesn't go here and his first language is not English. Why? Because here in the RDU area, there are 2.7 million people, and granted, yes, the majority of them are Christian or have some affiliation with the church, but we have a massive immigrant community here from all over the world. Of those, there's 17,000 Muslims from about 10 different or more countries. There's 11,000 Jewish people, 26 plus thousand Hindus from all across Asia, and 17, almost 18,000 Buddhists in our, in our city, in RDU, in Chapel Hill, in Apex, in Cary, all these areas there are these people who their first language is probably not English, and they probably haven't heard the gospel before. And God has equipped you and put, placed you around them so that you can go and share the gospel with them. And so what I want to encourage you to do, church, and this may sound hard, but I guarantee you it's possible, is I want you to learn how to share the gospel to them in their language, in their heart language. And what do I mean by heart language? Your heart language is the language in which you think, feel, and describe your experiences to yourself. It's your, it's your heart language. And why is that important? Well, because if someone hears the gospel in their heart language, it has a very different effect than in a foreign language. I remember I was in a subway in a big city in South America one time, and I was getting to my destination. I ran into this lady who was uh, lost, and she was asking for directions, and I realized that she was from Germany. And so we talked a little bit, and I said, hey, would you mind if I shared a verse with you I've been working on? And she said, sure. And I said, okay. Also hat Gott die Welt geliebt, dass er seinen eingeborenen Sohn gab, auf dass alle, die an ihn glauben, nicht verloren werden, sondern das ewige Leben haben. Some of you are like, what just happened? Why, where am I? <laughs> well, if you know a little bit German, you know what I said was John 3.16. Yeah, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, have everlasting life. What was so cool about sharing with that lady is as I shared that verse, she started reciting it with me. 
and tears welled up in her eyes. And by the time I was finished, she said, thank you. And I don't know what happened to that lady. I never saw her again, but I know this. The words of Scripture have power in every language to transform lives. Doesn't matter what language you learn them in. God's Word has power. So go where, where whoever's around you, Learn maybe, maybe John 3.16, Romans 5.8. Start small. Learn to say some, some truth in Scripture to somebody in their heart language. Or, and, and just learn how to interact with them, you know? You, you'd be surprised how a little can go a long way when you're in another country and no one speaks your language and you, you feel alone. And lastly, this morning, church, I want to challenge us to pray. There are, like I said, 4.6 billion people who are lost in our world, at least, and they need our prayer. We need to join in the mission to pray for the lost. And one of the ways you can do that this morning on your way out on that same table, we have this booklet that's called Loving the Lost of the World Through Prayer. I challenge you to pick it up. It tells you how you can pray for people in all the different countries and it's a 52-week guide. So you can, you can do it one week per year. So I challenge you to pick that up. I also challenge you to pray specifically for our missionaries here at Southbridge. There are about 18 missionaries, husbands and wives, and their kids that we sent out from this church over the years, whether from Covenant or Southbridge. We're all one church now. And they need your prayer. They need you to, to join them in the battlefield of prayer for them. And so I invite you to ask us, how, how can you get connected to praying for them? If you're watching online, email info at sfchurch.com. We'll send you some information on how you can get connected and to pray for them. Or stop by the next steps table on your way out this morning. But we need you to pray for our missionaries. In fact, let's do that together right now. Heavenly Father, God, we come to you this morning excited, convicted, burdened for the massive number of people in our world that are lost. And we know this task is too big for us. But you know, we know that you've commanded us, equipped us, and you'll help us. God, and I ask that you would send us from this place, send whoever you've called here, Lord, to wherever you've called them. Give them strength, Lord. And we pray for our missionaries right now, God, that are across the world, that have been living through COVID and, and trying times. God, would you empower them? Would you encourage them? Would you give them fruit of their labor, Lord? Would you move people in here to support them in prayer? And God, if there's people in this room, Lord, that do not know you, who are not a member of the kingdom of heaven yet, I pray that they would do that this morning. They would pray to receive your son, Jesus. They would repent of their sin and believe for their salvation. If you're listening this morning online, you can text the number, uh, text pray to the number on your screen. Or if you're here in the room, you can come to the sides and we'll have people that can pray with you. God, I pray for whoever those are that, that need hope. God, would they find that hope in your son Jesus today? In Christ alone. Amen. As we close this morning, we're going to sing in Christ alone again. And I wanted us to sing this song because a couple years ago, I had a vision when I was at chapel at Southeastern Seminary, we were all singing this song together. And I was moved to tears because I had this vision that one day we would all be gathered around the throne singing this song in different languages as our kingdom anthem, as our national anthem as Christians. And so I invite you this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus, sing this song together in Christ alone. Maybe even put your hand over your heart. This is your, your allegiance to your king and your kingdom in Christ alone.